Section 8 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum. Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology. Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 36, Part 1. The Engineering Contributions of Wendell Bowman by Robert M. Vogel. The development of structural engineering has always been as dependent upon the availability of materials as upon the expansion of theoretical concepts. Perhaps the greatest single step in the history of civil engineering was the introduction of iron as a primary structural material in the 19th century. It quickly released the bridge in the building from the confines of a technology based upon the limited strength of masonry and wood. Wendell Bowman, self-taught Baltimore civil engineer, was the first to evolve a system of bridging in iron to be consistently used on an American railroad, becoming one of the pioneers who ushered in the modern period of structural engineering. The author, Robert M. Vogel, is curator of civil engineering in the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of History and Technology. Wendell Bowman's name survives today solely in association with the Bowman Trusts, and even in this respect is known only to a few older civil and railroad engineers. The Bowman system of trussing, along with those of Whipple and Fink, may be said to have introduced the great age of the metal bridge and thus directly the modern period of civil engineering. Bowman's Bridge Truss, of which the first example was built in 1850, has the very significant distinction of being the first bridging system in the world employing iron in all of its principal structural members that was used consistently on a railroad. The importance of this transition from wood to iron as a structural and bridge-building material is generally recognized, but it may be well to mention certain aspects of this change. The tradition of masonry bridge construction never attained the great strength in this country which it held in Europe, despite a number of notable exceptions. There were several reasons for this. From the very beginning of colonization, capital was scarce, a condition that prevailed until well into the 19th century, and which prohibited the use of masonry because of the extremely high costs of labor and transport. An even more important economic consideration was the rapidity with which it was necessary to extend the construction of railways during their pioneer years. Unlike the early English and European railways, which invariably traversed areas of dense population and industrial activity and were thus assured of a significant financial return, almost from the moment that the first rail was down, the Baltimore and Ohio and its contemporaries were launched upon an entirely different commercial prospect. Their principal business consisted not so much in along-the-line transactions as in haulage between principal terminals, separated by great and largely desolate expanses. This meant that income was severely limited until the line was virtually complete from end to end, and it meant that commencement of return upon the initial investment was entirely dependent upon the speed of survey, graduation, tunneling, and bridging. 
the need for speed, the general attenuation of capital, and the simple fact that all the early railroads traversed thickly forested areas, rendered wood the most logical material for bridge and other construction, both temporary and permanent. The use of wood as a bridge material did not, of course, originate with the railroads, or for that matter in this country. The heavily wooded European countries, Switzerland in particular, had a strong tradition of bridge construction in timber from the Renaissance on, and naturally a certain amount of this technique found its way to the New World with the colonials and immigrants. America's highway system was meager, until about the time the railroad age itself was beginning. However, by 1812, there were, along the eastern seaboard, a number of fine timber bridges of truly remarkable structural sophistication and workmanship. It was just previous to the advent of the railroads that the erection of highway bridges in this country began to pass from an art to a science. And in art it had been, in the hands of the group of skilled but unschooled master carpenters and masons, who built largely from an intuitive sense of proportion, stress, and the general fitness of things. It passed into an exact science under the guidance of a small number of men, trained at first in the scientific and technical schools of Europe, and after about 1820, in the few institutions then established in America that offered technical instruction. The increasing number of trained engineers at first affected highway bridge construction not so much in the materials used, but in the way they were assembled. In a bridge designed by a self taught constructor, the cheapness of wood made it entirely feasible to proportion the members by enlarging them to the point where there could be no question as to their structural adequacy. The trained engineer, on the other hand, could design from the standpoint of determining the entire load and then proportioning each element according to the increment of stress upon it and to the unit capacity of the material. By the time railroads had started expanding to the West, there had been sufficient experience with the half-dozen practical timber truss systems by then evolved, that there was little difficulty in translating them into bridges capable of supporting the initial light rail traffic. In spite of its inherent shortcomings, wood was so adaptable that it met almost perfectly the needs of the railroads during the early decades of their intense expansion, and, in fact, still finds limited use in the Northwest. Early Career Wendell Bowman was born in Baltimore, of German parents, in 1814. His father was a baker, who in the same year had aided in the city's defense against the British. Wendell's education, until about the age of 11, was more or less conventionally gained in public and private schools in Baltimore. He then entered into informal apprenticeship, first to an apothecary in Shepherdstown, Virginia, now West Virginia, and then to one in Harper's Ferry. In 1826 or 1827, he became ill and returned to Baltimore for cure. From that time on, his education was entirely self-acquired. It is of interest, in light of his later career, to note that on the 4th of July, 1828, he marched with other boys in a procession that was part of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's cornerstone-laying ceremony. Shortly afterward, he apprenticed himself to a carpenter for a brief time, but when the work slacked off, he obtained work with the B&O. The right-of-way had been graded for about five miles by that time, but no rail was down. The boy was at first given manual work, 
but soon advanced to Rodman, and rapidly rose as he gained facility with the surveying apparatus. In the fall of 1829, he participated in laying the first track. As his mother was anxious that he continue his education in carpentry, he left the railroad in the spring of 1830 to again enter apprenticeship. He finished, became a journeyman, helped build a planter's mansion in Natchez, and returned to Baltimore in 1837 to commence his own carpentry business. The next year, while building a house in Harper's Ferry, he was asked to rejoin the B&O to rebuild parts of its large timber bridge over the Potomac there, which had fallen victim to various defects after about a year's use. Shortly after the Harper's Ferry Bridge reconstruction, Bowman was made foreman of bridges. It is apparent that on the basis of his practical ability, enhanced by the theoretical knowledge gained by intense self-study, he eventually came to assist Chief Engineer Benjamin H. Latrobe in bridge design. He later took this work over entirely, as Latrobe's attentions and talents were demanded in the location and extension of the line between Cumberland and Wheeling. The B&O did not reach its logical destination. Ohio, actually Wheeling, West Virginia, on the east bank of the Ohio River, until 1853. In the years following Bowman's return to the railroad, the design of bridges was an occupation of the engineering staff second in importance only to the location of the line itself. During this time, Bowman continued to rise and assume greater responsibilities, being appointed Master of Road by Latrobe in 1848. In this position, he was responsible for all railroad property that did not move, principally the right-of-way and its structures, including, of course, bridges. The recognition of Bowman's abilities was in the well-established tradition of the B&O, long known as America's first school of engineering, having sponsored many early experiments in motive power, track work, and other fundamental elements of railroad engineering. It furnished the means of expression for such men as Knight, Wright, Whistler, Latrobe, and Winans. Of these pioneer civil and mechanical engineers, some were formally trained, but most were self-taught. Bowman's career on the B&O is of particular interest not only because he was perhaps the most successful of the latter class, but because he was probably also the last. He may be said to be a true representative of the transitional period between intuitive and exact engineering. Actually, his designing was a composite of the two methods. While making consistent use of mathematical analysis, he was at the same time more or less dependent upon empirical methods. For years, B&O employees told stories of his sessions in the tin shop of the railroad's main repair facility at Mount Clare in Baltimore, where he built models of bridges from scraps of metal, and then tested them to destruction to locate weaknesses. It seems most likely, however, that the empirical studies were used solely as checks against the mathematical. In the period when Bowman began designing, about 1840, there were fewer than ten men in the country designing bridges by scientifically correct analytical methods. Whipple and Roebling, the most notable of this group. By 1884, the year of Bowman's death, the age of intuitive design had been dead for a decade or longer. The B&O was in every way a truly pioneer enterprise. 
It was the first practical railroad in America, the first to use an American locomotive, the first to cross the Alleghenies. The spirit of innovation had been encouraged by the railroad's directors from the outset. It could hardly have been otherwise in light of the project's elemental daring. The first few major bridges beyond the line's starting point on Pratt Street in Baltimore were of rather elaborate masonry, but this may be explained by the projectors' consciousness of the railroad's significance and their desire for permanence. However, the aforementioned economic factors shortly made obvious the necessity of departure from the system, and wood was thereafter employed for most long spans on the line, as far as Harper's Ferry and beyond. Only the most minor culverts and short spans, and those only in locations near suitable quarries, were built of stone. In addition to the economic considerations, which prompted the company to revert to timber for the major bridges, there were several situations in which masonry construction was unsuitable for practical reasons. If stone arches were used in locations where the grade of the line was a relatively short distance above the surface of the stream to be crossed, a number of short arches would have been necessary to avoid a very flat single arch. In arch construction, the smaller the segment of a circle represented by the arch, that is, the flatter the arch, the greater the stress in the arch ring and the resulting horizontal thrust on the abutments. The piers for the numerous arches necessary to permit an optimum amount of rise relative to the span would have presented a dangerous restriction to stream flow in time of flood. By the use of timber trusses, such crossings could be made in one or two spans with at most one pier on the stream, thus avoiding the problem. The principal timber bridges as far west as Cumberland were of Latrobe's design. They were good, solid structures of composite construction, in which a certain amount of cast iron was used in joints and wrought iron for certain tension members. They were, however, more empirical than efficient, and for the most part not only grossly over-designed, but of decidedly difficult fabrication and construction. What is interesting about the Latrobian timber trusses, however, is the effect they appear to have had upon Bullman's subsequent work on the design of his own truss. This effect is evidenced by the marked analogy between the primary structural elements of the two types. The Latrobe truss at Ellysville was only partially a truss, inasmuch as the greater part of the load was not carried from panel to panel, finally to appear at the abutments as a pure vertical reaction but was carried from each panel, except the four at the center, directly to the bearing points at the piers by heavy diagonal struts, after the fashion of the famous 18th-century Swiss trusses of the Grubenmans. It was a legitimate structural device, and the simplest means of extending the capacity of a spanning system. However, it was defective, in that the struts supplied considerable horizontal thrust to the abutments, requiring heavier masonry than would otherwise have been necessary. It is quite likely that Latrobe did not have absolute confidence in the various pure truss systems already patented by Town, Long, and others, and preferred, for such strategic service, a structure in which the panel members acted more or less independently of one another. It will be seen that, similarly, the individual panel loads in Bowman's truss were carried to the ends of the frame by members acting independently of one another.
the Bullman Truss. There had never been any question about the many serious inadequacies of wood as a bridge material. Decay and fire risk, always present, were the principal ones, involving continuous expenditure for replacement of defective members and for fire watches. It was, in fact, understood by the management and engineering staff of the B&O that their timber bridge superstructures, though considered the finest in the country, were more or less expedient and were eventually to be replaced. In this regard, it is not surprising that Latrobe, a man of considerable foresight, had, at an early date, given serious thought to the possible application of iron here. The world's first major iron bridge, the famed cast-iron arch at Colebrookdale, England, had been constructed in 1779. Its erection was followed by rather sporadic interest in this use of the material. The first significant use of iron in this country was in a series of small trust highway arches erected by Squire Whipple of the Erie Canal in the early 1840s, over 60 years later. In these, as in most of the earlier iron structures, an arch of cast iron was the primary support. The thrust of the arches was counteracted by open wrought iron links, with other wrought and cast iron members contributing to the truss action. The Whipple bridges promoted a certain amount of interest in the material. In the B&O's annual report for the fiscal year 1849 appears the first record of Latrobe's interest in this important matter. In the President's message is found the following rather offhand statement. $6,183.19 have been expended toward the renewal of the stone bridges on the Washington branch, carried off by the flood of October 7, 1847. Preparations are made and contracts entered into for the reconstruction of the large bridges at Little Portuxent and at Bladensburg, which will be executed in a few months. It is proposed to erect a superstructure of iron upon stone abutments at each place with increased span for greater security against future floods. It is interesting to note that it was indeed Bowman's trusses to which the president of the railroad had referred. How much earlier than this date Bowman had evolved his peculiar trussing system is not clear. The certain influence of Latrobe's radiating strut system of trussing has been mentioned. As likely an influence was another basic technique commonly used to increase the capacity of a simple timber beam, that of trussing, that is, placing beneath the beam a rod of iron that was anchored at the ends of the beam and held a certain distance below it at the center by a vertical strut or post. This combination thus became a truss, in that the timber portion was no longer subject to a bending stress but to a simple one of compression, the rod absorbing the tensile stress of the combination. The effect was to deepen the beam, increasing the distance between its extreme fibers and, by thus reducing the bending moment, reducing the stress in them. It apparently occurred to Bowman that by extending the number of rods in a longitudinal direction, this effect could be practically amplified to such an extent as to be capable of spanning considerable distances. He almost certainly did not at first contemplate an all-iron system, but rather a composite one such as described. It is entirely likely that such trust beams with multiple systems of tension rods were used by Bowman as bridging in temporary trestle work 
along the line as early as 1845. It is impossible to say whether Bowman himself or Latrobe was struck with the logic of further elaborating upon the system and simultaneously translating the timber compression member into one of cast iron. Cast iron would naturally have been selected for a member that resisted a compressive stress. It was considerably cheaper than wrought iron. But more important, at that time, wrought iron was not available in shapes of sufficient sectional area to resist the appreciable buckling stresses induced in long compression members. The cost of building up members to sufficient size, from the very limited selection of small shapes then rolled, would have been prohibitive. The trussing rods, subjected to tension, were of wrought iron inasmuch as the sectional area had only to be sufficient to resist the primary axial stress. The first all-iron Bowman truss was constructed over the Little Portuxent River at Savage Factory near Laurel, Maryland, in 1850. In the chief engineer's report for the year 1850, Latrobe was able to state that the truss had been completed and was giving much satisfaction. He went on at some length to praise the valuable mechanical features embodied therein and expressed great confidence that iron would become as important a material in the field of civil engineering as it was in mechanical engineering. The cost of this first major Bowman bridge was $23,825. Its span was 76 feet. Latrobe's confidence was well placed. The Savage Span and another at Bladensburg may be considered successful pilot models, for in spite of a certain undercurrent of mistrust of iron bridges within the engineering profession, due mainly to a number of failures of improperly designed spans, Latrobe felt that there was sufficient justification for the unqualified adoption of iron in all subsequent major bridge structures on the B&O. Almost immediately following completion of the Savage Bridge, Bowman undertook the design of replacements for the large Patapsco River span at Ellisville, now Daniels, Maryland, and the so-called Winchester span of the B&O's largest and most important bridge, that over the Potomac at Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry Bridge, a timber structure, had been designed by Latrobe and built in 1836 through 1837 by the noted bridge constructor, Louis Vernvag. It was peculiar in having a turnout near the Virginia shore, where a subsidiary road branched off to Winchester. Only the single span on this line, situated between the mid-river switch and the shore, was slated for replacement, as the other seven spans of the bridge had been virtually reconstructed in the decade or so of their history and were in sound condition at the time. The Winchester span, which was the first Bowman truss to embody sufficient refinement of detail to be considered a prototype, was completed in 1851. Bowman was extremely proud of the work, with perfect justification, it may be said. The 124-foot span was fabricated in the railroad's extensive Mount Clare shops. It was subdivided into eight panels by seven struts and seven pairs of truss rods. An interesting difference between this span and Bowman's succeeding bridges was his use of granite rather than cast iron for the towers. The span consisted of three parallel lines of trussing to accommodate a common road in addition to the single-track Winchester line. The distinctive feature of the Bowman system was the previously mentioned series of diagonal truss links in combination with a cast-iron compression cord, which Bowman called the stretcher. The spacing between the cord 
and the junction of each pair of links was maintained by a vertical post or strut, also cast. Much of the appeal of this design lay unquestionably in the sense of security derived from the fact that each of the systems acted independently to carry its load to the abutments. The lower cords, actually non-functional in the primary structure, were included merely to preserve the proper longitudinal spacing between the lower ends of the struts. A certain lack of rigidity was inherent in the system due to that very discontinuity which characterized its action. However, this was compensated for by a pair of light diagonal stay rods crossing each panel. These rods serve the additional function of distributing concentrated loads to adjacent struts, much in the manner of the bridging between floor joists in a building. In the Winchester span, the floor system was of timber, for reasons of economy. This was a very minor weakness, inasmuch as any stick could be quickly replaced and without disturbing the function of the structure. Bowman received a patent for his truss in January of 1852, and in the same year published a booklet describing his system in general, and the Harper's Ferry span in particular. Here he first calls it a suspension and trust bridge, which is indeed an accurate designation for a system which is not strictly a truss because it has no active lower cord. The analogy to a suspension bridge is quite clear, each pair of primary rods being comparable to a suspension cable. Thereafter, Bowman's invention was generally termed a suspension truss. End of section 8